Welcome to episode 73 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. The following is the audio from the Lord's Day worship service at Christ's Covenant Church that took place on November 14th, 2021. The sermon text was from Haggai chapter 2, verses 12 through 23. If you'd like to learn more about Reformation Roundtable or Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, head on over to lewiscounty.church. Lewiscounty.church is the website of Christ Covenant Church, and on it you will find our most up-to-date service times, as well as a calendar of events. We'd love for you to join us for Lord's Day worship this coming Lord's Day, and we hope that you enjoy the sermon audio. Our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtains, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You pray with me. Father, we ask that you would prepare our hearts as we enter into worship with you, cause our hearts and minds to be filled with your laws and with your thoughts. We ask for boldness to come into your presence with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week in our To the Word Bible Reading Challenge, and if you haven't joined us, you should join us today. You can grab a a copy at the table out front. But this week in our To the Word Bible Reading Challenge, we came to the book of Acts, specifically chapter 4, and I wanted to highlight verse 32. This is what it says. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. So this verse speaks to the voluntary, keyword voluntary, this, this verse speaks to the voluntary charity on display for God's people, by God's people. This wasn't charity in general, but rather a targeted emphasis on providing for the needs of those belonging to the family of God. And notice it wasn't just physical needs either, although those were certainly included. The believers were of one heart and soul. They weren't just writing checks, they were investing in one another. We live in a time of abundant physical resources. We may be leaving that time, but we live in it right now. We live in a time of abundant physical resources, but a tremendous dearth um, or lack of spiritual, emotional, and social resources or connections. In other words, people are starving, but they're starving for things other than food. They're starving for friendship, for father figures, for examples of motherly care and compassion. People are starving for fellowship, accountability, and even the faithful wounds of a friend. So we must be generous with our time as well as our physical resources. But we are not infinite like God, and therefore we must decide on whom, our, on whom shall our limited charity be, be bestowed. 
Scripture tells us the order we are to follow. First, we must provide for those within our own household, including our parents, if they are in need. See Timothy, uh, see 1 Timothy 5.8 and Mark 7.10-13. If those needs are met, then in addition to, to this, um, in addition to the tithe we are already bringing, we should be providing for the needs of those within our own local body of believers, our local church. Um, see the passage that we just read, Acts 4.32. And once those critical needs are being covered, we can move on to the needs of our brothers and sisters within our regional, national, and global churches. And finally, we can then bless the unbelieving world with our Christ-like love, care, and generosity. See Galatians 6.10. That's the order. So here at Christ Covenant Church, we have been praying for growth in the number of souls who worship with us weekly, and we should. As we pray for this, we should also expect God to answer. However, when He does, are we ready to serve the needs He brings our way? So that like in Acts 4, there will, there will not be a needy person among us? Such a thing in Acts didn't happen by magic. It happened by the Holy Spirit inspiring hard work, insight into needs, and a willingness to treat others as more important than ourselves. Are we willing to connect both the gospel and our own generosity? Are we willing to submit to the hierarchy of needs that Scripture requires and take care of those whom we are most responsible for, regardless of the glory, or lack thereof, we might achieve? Are we willing to take action when we see a need and not make excuses for why we can't help? Because of our natural selfishness, On our own, this would be impossible. But with God, such a thing is not only possible, but a reality we must pursue together. And so this reminds us of our sinfulness and the necessity to confess our sins to God. So if you are able, will you please kneel with me? Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, including verse 17, and every, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single, sacrifice, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. People of God, hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Our, tech, our sermon text comes from Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with, his, with the fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food... Does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? But when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. 
When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since, the, since that day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It's a joy to bring to you uh, this morning the word of God. Will you please pray with me? Father, your word is before us. We would ask you to open our eyes to the glory you have revealed in it. Cause us to hear it with ears opened by the Holy Spirit and hearts that have been made alive in Christ. Cause your word to change us in whatever painful and glorious ways you choose. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So back at the beginning of August this year, um, I had the privilege of preaching two sermons um, of what ended up being a three-part sermon series through the book of Haggai. Today is that third part. And today we're going to finish this book. It's It's a short book, but we have some pretty serious review work to get to. Because three months is a long time to be separated from the text. So we're going to start right at the beginning of Haggai and work our way up to the, to the uh, portion of, te- of Scripture that we just read. Uh, in the theme of tell them what you're going to tell them, the major theme in Haggai and the thing we're going to be focusing on is that built, the building of the temple is central to the building of civilization. The building of the temple is central to the building of civilization. Similarly, we can say that the worship of God must always be central to the building of civilizations. Uh, In other words, you can't build a civilization and then add on or tack on worship. Civilization, whatever they are, will find all of her triumphs and downfalls with the downstream effects of whatever her good or bad worship contains upstream of her fidelity to the one true God, or to her her ensnarement in idols. So civilizations, whatever they might be, are always going to be a result of their worship. Psalm 115, a portion of Psalm 115, gives us the the following warning about civilizations built upon something other than the fear of God. The psalmist states, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not hear. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Listen to this. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So that's the major theme. We will become, our civilization is a direct result of our worship. So Haggai is dealing with the returning exiles of Israel who have decided, because of uh, persecution and convenience, uh, to skip the worship of the one true God. And they've decided to skip it by 
ceasing rebuilding the house. They were, they were sent back to rebuild the house. They faced persecution. They faced inconvenience. And so they just stopped. Um, and so uh, let's review the book and see how well it worked out for them to just try to have a civilization, just try to live their life without worship. So Haggai is one of three minor prophets that come to the Jews after their exile to Babylon was over. Um, and they, then after their exile to Babylon was over, they were allowed to return to the land of promise. Uh, and the Jews, if you remember, had been told repeatedly that due to their disobedience and unbelief, they would be the recipients of 70 years of captivity. And just as promised in 587 BC, the Babylonians came in and plundered the temple, burned it to the ground, and made the Jews leave for Babylon with them. While they were in captivity, the Persians came and defeated the Babylonians. You guys remember that story? Handwriting on the wall. And then the Persians became the rulers over the Jews. So we read in the book of Ezra about the king. This was, this was a few months ago. We read about, in the book of Ezra about the king of Persia. And his name was Cyrus. Uh, we read how he was compelled by God to not only send the Jews back to their homeland, but to help finance the rebuilding of the destroyed temple. And if you remember, we tied this to Proverbs 21.1, which is that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So this is amazing. Not only were God's people being set free, they were also receiving financial help and backing to rebuild both the wall and the temple. Well, 70 years is a long time to be gone from your homeland, and by the time the Jews returned, their enemies were not happy to see them, and in fact were successful in shutting their efforts down to rebuild the temple. And so the people just gave up on it, and they just went about with their lives, content to be without a temple. This is where the book of Haggai comes in. In chapter 1, Haggai delivers a crushing word from the Lord. Remember, Haggai is not saying anything on his own. He's a prophet. He's a mouthpiece of God. That's why it's, thus says the Lord. Haggai delivers a crushing word from the Lord. He tells the people in August of this year, the second year of of, uh, Darius, he tells them in August, in the midst of their harvest, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, referring to the temple, lies in ruins? God uses this prophecy from Haggai to open the eyes of the Jews to their spiritual laziness. They were content to work on their own homes. Um, They built tabernacles or paneled houses for themselves. So they had no qualms about building uh, tabernacles for themselves. Um, but they, and, um, and they had no qualms about leaving the tabernacle of God desolate and destroyed. God was not telling them some Marxist idea about the wickedness of wealth or paneled houses or anything like that. He wasn't saying that paneled houses, a sign of wealth, was bad, but rather that paneled houses, a sign of good times, should be present only after, only after God-honoring, faithful worship had been established and faithfully pursued. Of course, the ironic thing was that the times were not good. The Jews were living as though everything was fine, but they weren't. God uses Haggai again as his prophet to bring them back to reality. He says, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, 
but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. God had been laying covenantal curses upon them due to their disobedience. Curses that were promised long ago in the, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. Covenants work like this. When God makes a covenant with you, there are blessings for obedience. And the blessings are tremendous. But alongside there, there's also curses for disobedience. The Jews had been disobedient, and thus they were experiencing the curse of God. If you want a sobering look, and a glorious look, at what God expects from his people, go read Deuteronomy 28. What the Jews were missing was the fact that without the temple, their civilization, their daily life, had no anchor, no central point on which to approach, worship, and commune with their creator. We, just like them, are worshiping creatures, and we will always worship something. As we read in Psalm 115, we become like what we worship. If what we worship is deaf, dumb, lame, mute, and blind, we will become deaf, dumb, lame, mute, and blind. But if we worship the living God, we will become like him. Because the Jews decided to neglect the faithful worship of God, they were referred to by God. God refers to them as this people. He doesn't say my people. He says this people. And, and they, he calls them this because they have no home for God to dwell in. And they were under his covenantal curses. So God tells them, go into the mountains. This is still in Haggai chapter 1. He says, go into the mountains and bring back timber and rebuild the temple. The reason he gives for rebuilding the temple is so that he might take pleasure in the temple and that he might be glorified by the temple. Of course, the people will be blessed by the temple as well, but the primary importance is that God is glorified and that he has a place where he might be worshipped the way he has commanded. If you were with us last week, we had the wonderful opportunity to hear Pastor Hatcher preach to us on why on the why of covenant renewal worship, what we're doing right now. During this time, he spoke on the centrality of worship. This centrality, he was emphasizing, is not just his hobby horse. It's essential to our lives as Christians and found all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we find the centrality of worship. Let me just give you one example. Think back to the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. When God was provoking a fight with Pharaoh over letting his people go, and yes, he was provoking a fight, and he was provoking this fight so that his name might be made glorious in all the world. As the Jews went out from the land of Egypt after the Exodus, God's glory and fame was known because of all the plagues. He provoked a fight on purpose. But when he provoked this fight with Pharaoh, in this fight, he didn't Um, In this fight, he didn't tell Pharaoh to let his people go because slavery is wrong. He didn't demand their freedom due to their mistreatment. His fight with Pharaoh wasn't over politics, economics, social justice. It was all about worship. Exodus 5.1, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. While there were manifold reasons for the Lord to take pity pity on Israel, his son, at the hand of Pharaoh, God's primary reason for demanding their freedom was so that they might worship him. Likewise, in Haggai, God has been striking his own people. 
He's been striking them with bad crops, bad wine, bad income, bad everything, so that they might turn from their worshiping the idol of self and return to the true worship of him. While there are many, many differences between the story of Exodus and that of Haggai, the major difference lies in the hearts of the ones being struck by God. When Pharaoh was struck with plague after plague after plague, his heart was hardened again and again. It was hardened by God that the full measure of Yahweh's wrath might be poured out upon Egypt, but Pharaoh also hardened his own heart toward God and instead embraced the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. So when faced with the awesome power of the Lord, Pharaoh chose poorly. On the other hand, when the Jews found themselves shaken awake by the words of Haggai, when they saw that all the products of their toil were being struck with blight, with mildew, and with hail, they decided to listen to the prophet of the Lord and to obey what he said. So before even a month had passed, remember they were in the midst of their harvest, as meager as it was, but Haggai comes to them with this word, before even a month had passed, the people had again, again, Uh, begun the work on the temple. They took it up again. So the word came in August and the people began their work in September. Haggai rebukes the people and the people respond in obedience. That is chapter one. We're making progress. Moving on to chapter two, we see the word of the Lord returning to Haggai a second time, one month or about one month later in October. Now I'm giving us August, September, October, because it's too hard to think about the sixth month and the ninth month, because they don't correspond. The Jews' calendar doesn't correspond to the Christian calendar. So, our time of August, um, God returns a second time through Haggai with a second prophecy. God sends this second prophecy during the week of what should have been the Feast of Booths. This was a time when each household would build a booth or a tabernacle, basically a miniature temple in which to dwell for a week while sacrificing to Yahweh, hearing, reading, listening to the law of God as it was discussed and taught. Basically like, a, uh, like the way we might do a, a summer uh, family camp. We'd get, go together, go camp out in the woods, cook a lot of food, and uh, read the Bible and hear it taught. But the Feast of Booths wasn't happening, and the people were experiencing a discouragement due to the underwhelming nature of this new temple. So the new temple wasn't very spectacular. It seemed kind of puny, and it wasn't even close to finished. Haggai's second word to them is that anyone who remembers the temple in its former glory and are discouraged with the work of rebuilding it should remember that there is a greater temple coming, a temple that is beyond anything the first version could compare with. He tells the people in verse 9 of chapter 2 the prophecy that, quote, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. So we have um, the people are discouraged. Haggai comes with some encouragement. Even though this second physical temple is going to be smaller, it's not going to be as glorious, there is a temple that is coming that will far um, will, the, the glory of will be far greater than even the first one. Um, so if you have your Bibles, uh, would you uh, turn forward to the Gospel of John? We're going to just spend a, just a, a couple minutes in, in the Gospel of John. Um, and if you go to chapter 1, go to, go to John chapter 1, 
Uh, and turn to verse 14. And I'm going to be connecting this, this prophecy um, in Haggai about the, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former with John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the reason I've turned here um, is that it's common in pop- it's common in um, evangelical cir- circles to expect the temple, uh, the temple that um, was rebuilt under Haggai and was destroyed in 70 AD under the Romans, it's a, uh, it's a common thought that this temple is going to be rebuilt a third time. A physical temple is going to be rebuilt a third time. Many expect this to happen very soon as the world rages around them. And in fact, it's common to hear as the world rages around them, well, we're in the last days. We shouldn't be surprised by any of this. So the thought goes that in order for the prophecy of the destruction of the temple uh, that we read, read about in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and was actually part of our gospel reading today in Mark 13, the thought goes that in order for these prophecies of the destruction of the temple um, to, to happen in the future, first the temple has to be rebuilt um, so that it can then again be destroyed as prophesied in those gospels. Now, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think it's biblically accurate for several reasons. But the one reason that I think is relevant to our text is this. The Jewish temple, um, as built by Solomon and rebuilt by the Jews under Zerubbabel at the time of Haggai, those, those temples will never be rebuilt again. It won't be rebuilt because there's no longer any need for an earthly tabernacle for God to dwell in. Look at, you, look at your gospel reading there, or, uh, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, that, that word is tabernacle. That, that word is the house of God. He became, basically what it's saying is that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The temple of God has, um, has come to us. So John 1 is saying the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Um, that, that word is used again in Revelation 21. Uh, verse 3, you don't have to turn there. It says, And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling, or the tabernacling, place of God is with man. He will dwell, tabernacle, with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, in the Old Testament, in order for God to dwell with his people, he needed a home, a tabernacle, or a temple. That a lot of the Old Testament is, is centered around the building of the tabernacle, exactly how he wants it laid out. He's got reasons for all of that. But this all changed with the incarnation. Everything changed with the incarnation. This is why Christmas is such a big deal. Not because of the consumerism, not because of all the, pre- the, the presents, although those are fun. It's, it's such a big deal because God literally became one of us. Jesus told the whole world in John 2... That he was the temple, not the magnificent building that took 46 years to build. This wasn't to minimize the the physical location of the temple or its beauty. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus had just finished cleaning house on those Jews who had turned the temple into a place of trade. Following his zealous and holy war on those who would one day be described as the synagogue of Satan, Jesus says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
So the Jews said to him, after he just finished tossing all the furniture down the front steps of the, te- of the temple, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, who do you think you are? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said then, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple isn't going to be rebuilt because Christ, and by, his, by extension, us, his church, are the new and better temple we read about in Haggai. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. In this place, God will give peace. Peace. Now, we live in a world that is constantly in despair and in anxiety. Where can such people turn for peace? Well, you might be tempted to say to Jesus, and, and that would be right. That would be, that'd be a perfect answer. But they can turn to us. They can turn to us, to the church, to the bride of Christ. And when people come to us and see in us a peace that surpasses understanding, that is our God-ordained opportunity to point them to the source of all peace. The house of God, which is made up of the living stones of believers, founded upon Christ as the chief cornerstone. So when the world looks for peace in the chaos and misery of their own sin, they're looking to you and I. And we are pointing them on to Jesus, whose spirit is in us. Think about this. The unbelieving world, they can't see Jesus, just like we can't see Jesus. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. But they can see us. They can see what we're doing. We are the ambassadors for Christ. And when people see the peace in us, that's when we turn them to Christ. Notice this, though. This is important. This peace, our peace, is not a me and Jesus only peace. Our peace is a bride and groom peace. We are the bride of Christ, and he is redeeming all of his bride. One day at the end of history as we know it, we will all sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that glorious meal, every single seat will be filled. There will not be a single soul that is missing from that feast, because Jesus, the good shepherd, will have gone and gathered all of us. So the peace you have with God is not just between you and him, but between Christ's body, of which you are a part, and Christ himself, the bridegroom, the chief cornerstone. But if you aren't weekly and even daily investing into this bride, then that peace will elude you as well. We, um, we no longer have a physical temple or tabernacle in which we must meet. Uh, Pastor Hatcher said this last week, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. Wherever we're gathered together, that is where worship is happening. Our temple is the gathering of Christ's body in worship. That is where God finds us, and that is where God dwells with us. Where he can call us into his presence, and where we can boldly approach his throne. This might happen, and this does happen in a small way, in a kind of way during your quiet time or your prayer life, Um, but the place where it primarily takes place is in covenant renewal worship, where Christ's body is present, that is us, and where Christ's body is served through the Lord's Supper. So never forget the cosmic importance of what you are doing right now. You aren't just learning 
or teaching your children a good habit or a good community tradition. You're not just being a good citizen by being here. You're not making social connections only. You are covenantally with God in heaven right now. We are all on the heavenly Mount Zion, receiving from him the glorious truth of Christ. And when we are sent back down into the world, all of our Christian civilization, to which the church is always working, is built on this and influenced by this time right now. Okay, so with my introduction out of the way, let's start the sermon. Yeah. Just kidding. Uh, But we did need to review that in order to get to where we are now, which is the the text that I read at the beginning. So um, there are four prophecies total, and we've covered two. The first one is, don't live in your paneled houses while God's house lies in ruins. The second prophecy is, don't be discouraged that that it's a lot of work. You're going to work hard. Don't be discouraged, because there's a temple coming that's even greater than what you're building now. So let's get to um, the the next two uh, prophecies. So the third prophecy starts in verse 10, back in Haggai, verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, On the the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So this is just reestablishing the fact that a new prophecy um, has come, and now it's December 18th by our reckoning. Things got kicked off. The, the, the work began on uh, September 21st. Haggai brought the word of encouragement on October 17th, and now it's December 18th. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. Whereas the first and second prophecies were addressed to everyone, priests, governor, and the people, this third prophecy is going to be addressed to the, to the priests only. And the fourth prophecy will be addressed to the governor only. So the prophecy begins with a question of ceremonial law. It says, verse 12, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. In the Old Testament, holiness never spreads beyond the first degree. Okay? In the Old Testament, holiness doesn't spread. Um, If you were making a sacrifice for sin, the holiness or expiation of that sacrifice only went to you, and even then it was temporary. The holiness didn't spread to other things. So if you had a bit of holy meat and you were carrying it around in the folds of your garment, the thing thing that your garments touched would not also become holy. Uh, So the, the, the holiness of your garments doesn't spread to the stew or oil or or wine. Um, holiness only travels to the first degree. It never spreads. So going into verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, the stew, the wine, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So we see the difference, right? While holiness never spreads, sin and death do. If you were to touch a, bo- a dead body in the Old Testament, because you had you, your uh, relative died and you were burying them, um, you would be unclean for a week. Um, and if you went home that, evening, uh, that afternoon and, and kissed your wife, she would be unclean until evening. And if she then went and picked up the toddler, the toddler would be unclean until evening. And if the toddler uh, punched his brother, they would be unclean as well. The ceremonial uncleanness spreads and spreads and spreads to multiple degrees. And this is one of the many reasons why the coming of Jesus is such world-shaking good news. For the first time since the fall, holiness would spread. And death would be the thing that would be held back. Jesus touched all kinds of people, 
who were unclean with sickness and death. And if we had touched them during that time, it would have made us unclean. But the holiness of Christ was so overwhelming that it went forth from him and made others clean instead of the other way around. So back to the text. This was over 500 years ago before Christ came to us. So things were still under the old ways. Sin and death spread, and therefore Haggai leads into verse 14. Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, and with, the nation, with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So at this time, holiness didn't spread, but uncleanness of sin and death did. Haggai rebukes the people that, um, that simply building a temple won't change anything if they don't plan to obey God's law and keep their end of the covenant. Remember, covenants have attendant blessings and curses. Israel, of course, had a horrible track record of obedience for any sustained period of time. Haggai tells them that everything they have offered up to this point has been unclean. And because of this, they have suffered the terrible consequences which he then goes on to describe in verses 15 through 17. So we're going to take three verses at once. He says, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So prior to the people taking up the good work on September 21st, they were in disobedience to their father in heaven. God was striking his people with blight, mildew, and hail, and yet they still hadn't got the message. These covenant curses weren't even waking them up, but that was, that was all. That was all referring to before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. This all happened before they started the good work. Now things are different. Check out verses 18 and 19. He says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, December 18th, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the oil tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So this date, December 18th, is an important date. The people of God need to remember this because God has seen that they are working hard toward building his house. It is winter and they have no crops in the ground yet. Everything is in the barn, either literally or figuratively. Nothing is growing. God is telling them that while in the past he has struck all the toil of their hands, from this day on he will bless them. Why didn't he tell them this on September 21st, you know, the day that the work started? Well, I have to speculate a little bit, but uh, I, think it would, I don't think it would be too crazy to say that um, perhaps God wanted to, to uh, wait and see, see if, they, uh, if the Jews had any perseverance in completing the task given to them. How many times have we started a project, began an idea, or even committed to destroying a habit of sin, only to give up a few weeks or months later? The Jews had been at this for nearly three months, and God wanted them to know that even though their crops weren't in the ground yet, when they were planted, he would bless them. Moving on to verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Okay, so we're now we're moving into the fourth prophecy. These last two prophecies, prophecy three and four, come on the same day, December 18th. First one, the first of these last two comes to just the priest, 
And this one, the final prophecy, comes to the governor. It says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. As governor, Zerubbabel is told again that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. In verse 6 of chapter 2, everyone was told that God would shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and that he would shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations would come in. And God said, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. All wealth belongs to God and he uses it to bless his own people. Let me say that again. All wealth belongs to God and he uses it to bless his own people. The pagans build wealth and we inherit it. The pagans build wealth, we inherit it. So be content with what you have now. The heathens are working hard to make sure you'll have more soon enough. But in all seriousness, what usually happens is that the pagans are converted and become children of God. And when they, when they do, then they bring their silver and gold into the house of God. That's what Haggai was saying. He was saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and earth and all the nations are going to come into the house of God and they're going to bring their wealth with them. And we definitely see this in the book of Acts with the, as the... As the Word of the gospel goes out in all nations. The nations stream in. And that is the story for most of us. If you go back into each one of our histories far enough, we're all probably sure to find pagans who converted and brought with them their wealth and talent into the kingdom of God. But this promise of the coming shaking is, is emphasized differently for Zerubbabel um, in, this pas- in, in verse 21. So it, that was verse 6. When God said that in verse 6, he was going to shake the heavens and and bring in all the nations and bring in all their gold and all their silver, in verse 21, he says something different. He says, I'm about to shake the heavens and earth um, and to to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother." So think about, think about this from the Jews' perspective. They're this tiny band of easily oppressed people, very easily manipulated, very easily oppressed. And the Babylonians and the Persians and, and the Romans who are coming eventually, they're all huge compared to tiny Israel. Zerubbabel might wonder, with some understandable fear and trepidation, what the consequences for Israel might be to have these enormous nations fighting it out. He might think, well, what's going to happen to us? Are we going to get caught in the crosshairs? It was pointed out to me during my studies of this book uh, that the land of Palestine was, and and is still to this day, uh, is extremely central to all the nations of the world. It was was put there on purpose. Uh, But so much so that Palestine often gets caught up as collateral damage in the fighting that takes place between other nations. So if you're in Europe and you want to get to Asia, you've got to go through Palestine. If you're in an Asia and you want to get to Africa, you've got to go through Palestine. Palestine is the central hub through which all these other paths to other nations uh, come out. And, and that's glorious for the work of the gospel. But Zerubbabel is thinking, are we going to get caught up in the nations duking it out amongst each other? Zerubbabel, um, God reassures Zerubbabel. He says, uh, he reassures Zerubbabel that the fighting that is going to take place will be between the wicked only. Um, He says that uh, everyone will go down by the sword of his brother. So we see this in our own day in a big way. Uh, Since the beginning of last year, we've all witnessed a coordinated attack 
orchestrated by various global, national, and local factions, organizations, and political par- parties. Uh, and and, and this, this, tar- this has been targeted against the basic human, indig- uh, the basic human rights and dignity of normal people. Uh, normal, thing like, normal things like breathing air, having access to medicine, choosing medical treatments, and gathering with others have become political and legal war zones. And, and I appreciate, uh, I appreciate and pray for those who are fighting the good fight to preserve basic freedoms. But I also know that there are many in the fight that may appear to be on our side and yet do not have the fear of God in them. And it would be very unwise for us to treat as brothers those who in actuality are co-belligerents or those who have a common enemy. The wicked are always, eventually, like the Midianites in the story of Gideon. The insanity of their sin always causes them to knife one another. All that to say, the world that we live find ourselves in, we should use caution when engaging in the current in the current culture wars out there, with anyone outside the house of God. Our Father is shaking the world to pieces right now. And when it's over, we don't want to have invested a lot of time, energy, and resources into those who were being shaken to pieces. And that includes people who politically might agree with us or see things the way we do. And we also don't want to get in God's way as he tears down the last 150 years of secular humanism and all the destruction it has caused. We want that rock gone, even if it hurts. So back to the text. God is promising Zerubbabel that he doesn't have to worry. God will take care of the fighting for him. In fact, we see this in even greater detail in one book over. If if you're in Haggai, flip ahead one book to Zechariah chapter 4. Flip ahead to Zechariah chapter 4. It's the next book after Haggai. And if you get to verse 4, find verse, or sorry, if you get to chapter 4, find verse 6. And this is what it says in Zechariah 4, 6. It's another prophecy, um, but this time it's to Zechariah. But it's concerning the same guy, Zerubbabel. This is the word the Lord, um, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So that was, Zechariah, uh, that was Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, starting with verse 6. So Zerubbabel is promised success. He's promised success not only in rebuilding the temple, but in bringing low the mountains into plains. Uh, and this success, we're told, is not going to come from his might or power, but by the power of the Spirit. Um, so this is, this is really fascinating. This is one of the things I came across as I was studying this passage. Um, it was pointed out that, the, that the, um, the use of the word mountains in this is referring to people. It's, re, it's referring actually in this case to nations. So the nations that are surrounding Zerubbabel, uh, God says here, he says, um, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Now, we have to look at that poetically. We have to, we have to realize that that is, that is being said in a poetic way. Um, 
we see similar language being discussed about Jesus in Isaiah, about the high places shall be made low. And we even hear Jesus use the idea of a mountain being cast into the sea as a sign of our faith in him. I think a credible case can be made that these mountains are symbolic for other nations. Zerubbabel is surrounded by nations that will be shaken to bits, and the mountains seem clearly tied with the nations. So the reason why this was helpful to me, and the reason why I'm spending any time on this, is because I've always struggled with, um, with uh, uh, the promise Jesus says to us in Mark. He says, I say to you, whoever says, uh, says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. So I believe that Jesus was not talking about Mount Rainier being thrown into the Puget Sound, but in this case was actually talking about the Roman Empire. This great mountain that had grown up and that were surrounding the Jews was going to be cast into the sea and in destruction, and that his disciples could truly believe that it would happen, even though that seemed as likely that the Roman Empire would fall that seemed as likely as, as an actual literal mountain being thrown into the sea. So we can pull tremendous encouragement from this. We live in a time when it seems that the wicked will always rule, uh, we, we, th- that God's law will always be despised. That's the world that we live in right now. Um, and it, it, we live in a world where it seems that those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, it seems like they're always going to be in charge. But this isn't true. Believe that these mountains can be cast into the sea, and then watch God work. All right, on to our last verse. We're finishing up. You guys are doing great. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. He is in the line of David. You can look it up in Matthew 1. He's in there. And he is being made like a signet ring. All right, what's a signet ring? Well, we have two known places in Scripture where we get to see the power and influence of a signet ring. First in Genesis, we read uh, regarding Joseph that Pharaoh tells him, this is a different Pharaoh than was oppressing the the Jews. It says, uh, Pharaoh tells Joseph, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. So the signet ring was a sign of delegated authority. Delegated authority. That means if you had the signet ring or if you had the it didn't even have to be a ring. Sometimes it was just a cylinder with a, with a stamp at the end that signified who it, was, who it belonged to. If you had the signet ring or the signet, you, were, um, you had the same power, the same authority as the person who gave it to you. So the key takeaway for this verse is that Zerubbabel has been chosen by God and is being made like a signet ring, having the authority of God on earth. And this is, of course, is a type and shadow of Jesus, the true king and the true signet from God to come. Um, And so with that, we have made it through Haggai. So let's close with some direct application. Scripture is not meant to be admired. It's meant to be implemented and obeyed. So we should admire it, but that should always come secondary to how can we obey it. So how can we be changed by the Holy Spirit through this passage of Scripture? 
I have one application point for you guys today. Only one. And um, I could have gone with three. You could, you could pull a lot of application from this, but I only have one. So if you don't remember anything else from this sermon, remember this. Kids, you guys, this is for you too. I'm 60 seconds from being done, so hang with me. Here's the critical thing to remember. Lord's Day worship is the most important thing we can engage in in this life. Lord's Day worship is the most important thing we can engage in in this life. It affects everything else. It flows into all other cultures, and without it, we are lost at sea in a world being shaken to pieces. So have your aim, your goal, your earnest desire to be in this unshakable house of God, no matter the cost to your schedule, your work, your sports, or any other non-emergency thing. Outside of being sick, or ministering to the sick, or other, other uh, ministries of mercy, nurses, doctors, etc., or other examples of lawful but extraordinary absences, commit to God and to those in your household that you will always worship with God's people on God's day. Out of town? No worries. Find a local body to gather with there. Always seek out the body of Christ. Always seek out His temple. You will be blessed, and so will they. You have six days to do your normal work, so set aside the Lord's day as he has asked you for the honor and joy of worshiping the king. My prayer and our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would change all of our hearts so that we might say with the psalmist, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, will you pray with me? Father, your word has been set before us. We ask that we would not be like the man in James, that we would not see our reflection and then go away and forget uh, what we look like. Please change us with this word, and may we um, go out into all the world as you, have, as you have called us to, but to always come back here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we come to the table of the Lord, we are coming to the place where the body of Christ is given to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is given to the body of Christ. As we just heard, Christ's body is on display in two ways. One is sacramentally here at the table. We believe that Christ is spiritually present in the bread and wine. So Christ's body is here sacramentally at the table, but his body is also here through the gathering of his saints who are the body of Christ. When Paul tells us that we must discern the body prior to partaking of the bread and wine, He meant we must recognize those brothers and sisters as being our people because they are Christ's people and therefore his body. There is no room at the table for quarrels or backbiting, for bitterness or unforgiveness. This table is the table of peace because it's the body of Christ. That's why we must discern the body because there is no room for unforgiveness. So when you come, discern the body. Remember who is at this table with you. Do they deserve to be here? Well, do you deserve to be here? The reality is that you do deserve to be at this table. And so does every one of your baptized brothers and sisters. You don't deserve, we don't deserve to be here because of our own righteousness in any way or in any of us. But because of the righteousness of the one who bought for you this place at the table. That's why you deserve to be here. So don't come as a stricken dog, as a worm. You belong here. You belong at the table of the Lord because Jesus bought this place for you. This table belongs to Jesus. Because you belong to Jesus, you belong to his feast. 
So for those of you who have been sealed in Christ through baptism, who are not under discipline of your local church, come and welcome to Jesus. The charge is this, go back out into the world and take dominion. In whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, that you might bring him, that you might bring his name glory and fame wherever he has placed you. But remember, you can only do that if your foundation is based in the faithful weekly gathering and worship of King Jesus in his temple. So prepare your hearts throughout this week to come back again and repeat the glorious rhythm that God has built into creation as we gather each week on the day of the Lord. Now receive from God the benediction from Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.